Thanks, Jono. Good to see you back, man. Um, just to start off with a couple of things. One, a big thank you to Pastor John, John Ahui, and Julie for sharing over the past four weeks. It was quite nice having four weeks um, sort of having a break uh, from being up the front. And it's probably a good break for you where you're not seeing me all the time. So um, that was a great blessing. Thank you very much for that. Uh, secondly, I would encourage you to read through the book of Philippians over the coming weeks. Uh, to read through the book of Philippians because we're going to start a series on the book of Philippians because when you think about it, Philippians is a wonderful picture of what a maturing church looks like. Of all the epistles that Paul writes, Philippians is the only book really that he doesn't correct anybody. He doesn't tell anyone off or doesn't set anyone straight. And so if you've got this maturing church, for us, and I think for a lot of us as individuals, we like to know, well, what are we supposed to measure up to? What are we supposed to look like? And, and yes, I know it is the person of Jesus Christ. Please, I do not want to minimize that reality. But the fact that a church actually looks like this would be a good model for us, I think, would be valuable for us as a church. If this is what a mature looks like, a mature church looks like, should I say, if this is what a mature church acts like or conducts themselves, then why not have a look at it and draw some practical principles and lessons for us to learn as well? Because I don't know if you're like me, we all desire to grow. We all desire to move on. We, we don't want to stay where we are. We don't want to just go through the motions of being a Christian, but to be a Christian that is a doer of God's Word and not just a hearer only. Hence the reason why the past eight weeks we've been looking at the things Jesus said. Jesus said what? Um, if I could have the slide up, please. Jesus said what about various things regarding our Christian life, our existence, our relationship with him and to each other. What's fascinating is, as I shared and Julie reminded us of this last week, that the controversial statements of Jesus are not controversial because he's been unfair. They're not controversial because he's trying to restrict us or to confine us. They're controversial because they directly confront me and my sinful nature. That's why they're controversial. They're controversial because it rubs me the wrong way and I do not like what I see and I do not like what I hear and God confronts me about that. And so we looked at eight things. I'll turn this on. There we go. So we looked at eight things that Jesus said. He said, what about sin? And that it's more than just an action. It, it goes to an attitude of the heart. He talked about loving our enemies, about turning the other cheek, setting a standard that is divinely originated as opposed to humanly originated. He talked about taking our salvation for granted. Think about that for a second. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's pretty scary. We talked about the cost of discipleship, about denying yourself, about taking up his cross, and about following him. Jono shared with us about prayer and that particular context when he said, if you can, with a father that cried out for his son, and it wasn't so much prayer, but about that of unbelief. It was an issue of faith and who the father believed Jesus to be, directly confronting us on who we believe Jesus 
to be. We looked at materialism, about selling all I have, the rich young ruler, as Pastor John shared, and and about caring for others. If you do these to the least of these, my brethren, you have done this as to me. And last week we had Julie who shared with us about forgiveness and about the attitude of Peter, how many times do I forgive my brother? 70 times, and 70 times 7 because of the nature of our attitudes. And it's not the number that counted, it was the nature of our hearts that he was addressing in that. You see, all of these teachings, all of these lessons, all of these are instructions to warn us, to enable us, to remind us, to prioritize us, to empower us to live a victorious and effective life for the kingdom of God. That's what these are for. That on our journey to eternity, this is how we are to conduct ourselves by the power of His Spirit for the glory of His name. Which means I thought today would be a wonderful opportunity after we finish this eight weeks, not to summarize, but to remind us, what are we here for? What are we here for? Jesus has given us all of these things. We have been given his word to live a certain way and to conduct ourselves in accordance with his heart and his desires. What then are we here for as we move ever closer to the Lord's return, ever closer to when we as individuals may go home to be with the Lord? How then are we using this precious resource that is called time that God has gifted us with? So I'm going to open a word of prayer. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in your word. We thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you enable us to not only understand and be empowered, but to live out your word to those around us. Father, I pray you will give us sensitive hearts to your spirit this morning. Father, I pray you will challenge us and convict us about our own attitudes, our own selfishness, even about the own little bits of sin we're holding on to ourselves. And give us the boldness and the ability to not only overcome, but to lay them aside so we can look unto you, our author and perfecter of our faith. Father, glorify yourself this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28. And this is one of the most familiar passages that I think you'll ever hear in Christian circles. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. We read this. Oops, sorry, too far. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know this passage. We're all familiar with this passage. And that on our way to eternity, we are not to be sitting idly by, twiddling our thumbs, watching things take place around us. Now, you know that I'm a big sports analogy man because I'm a sportsman. I don't use mathematics because I'm dumb. I don't use other things because I'm not academic at all. I like sports. 
And what I find interesting about sports is that when you're on the sideline watching a game of sport being played, you from the sideline can identify every weakness, every failing, every plan that takes place on the field from the sideline. And from the armchair critic side of it, you're like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, if we do this, we'll score. If we do this, we'll win. If we do this, we can beat up this guy, whatever it might be, however you play, Craig. So what I find interesting, though, is that a lot of Christians, we like to be on the sideline, and we like to critique from the sideline. We like to sit there and say, look, this leader's not doing that. Look, this leader's not doing this. Oh, look at this here. Look at that there. The church should be like this. The church should be like that. And we sit from our sidelines and we critique as well. But the Christian life isn't to be lived on the sidelines. The Christian life isn't to be lived there, twiddling your thumbs, watching everything else pass by. Because once you get in the game, then you've got something to say. Once you get in the game, then you can deal with what's practically in front of you. So it is with the Christian life. And we are told by Jesus himself, while he commissions his disciples, while he commissions us, with this particular commission, to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. These are the things, it's really quite fascinating because when you look at this passage, I see two specific things, and I'm going to talk to you about three specific things today. I see in that particular passage that of destiny, that of purpose, and the third thing I want to look at is that of enablement. These are the three things we're going to look at today from this particular charge God gives us as his children. Now, whenever we see this word destiny, we always mystify it, or it's, it's like some corny pickup line, hey there, baby. You're my destiny because I see you being with me from now to eternity. How ridiculous is that? If anybody says that to you, ladies, just kick them out. Don't have anything to do with that. That's, That's ridiculous. Or like George McFly in Back to the Future, you are my density. And that doesn't, okay. Okay. But whenever we think of this word destiny, we always think of things of, of that that's really mystified. Now, it's nothing to do with that when we look biblically. I say destiny because according to what the Scriptures teach, or more accurately what God says, the things we are destined for as His children in the here and now and in the life that's to come. Okay, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. For example, in the here and now, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, what is it? We have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is in the here and now. We have received that from the Lord. If you remember uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 11.3b, where it says that God has placed eternity within the heart of man, the longing for more and the longing for that which will last. So when we look at the destination that awaits us in the here and now and in the what is to come, yes, we have Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, but I also like this. This is the here, the, sorry, the what is to come. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us. There's our destiny. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
This is what we as believers have been destined for, chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, predestined to the adoption, to become his child through Jesus Christ. That's what we are destined for. That's what we have coming or awaiting us within the future, eternity future, as one brother put it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. That is what we are predestined for. We have been predestined for the praise of his glory as trophies of his goodness, as trophies of his mercy, of his love. This is what we are. This is what we have awaiting us. This is what we are destined for. Romans Chapter 8, and I have quoted this so many times, but for those God foreknew, he also predestined. That's actually the same Greek word. Both those words are the same Greek word. Foreknew, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, look. This is where God's sovereignty and God's full foreknowledge take precedence whether we understand it or not. I, I don't understand the complete mind and heart of God. I don't fully understand how predestination works. What I do know is my God loves me and he's destined me to be holy, blameless. He's predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. He has those things for me. That is what is to come. You know what the here and now responsibility of me is today? That who I am here, that when eternity began for me, did you know that when I became a child of God, that when Jesus Christ saved me from my sin, eternity started then. That's when eternity started and so my here and now, Joe now, with all his weaknesses, with all his faults, with all his failings, with all his idiotic choices, me here now, this is me? Well, my here and now is that by the grace and goodness and mercy of God, I'm able to bring my conduct and my action and my activity here and the here and now so it lines up with who I am as a child of God, holy and blameless. As I shared it years ago, to match my condition with my position in Christ. That's what that's about. That's what I am destined for. See, even though that predestination is beyond me, beyond us, I do take some facts away that I know cannot be argued. And this is what I do know for a fact. I know, I know that my life is temporary, that it's but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. I know, I know, according to what the scriptures teach and the reality of life, that heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. And that because of the temporal nature of my life and of the life around me, I am told to fix my eyes not on, what on, not on what's seen, but what is unseen. Why? Because the seen is temporal, the unseen is eternal. In other words, to have our eyes on Jesus who inhabits eternity, 
the immutable Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, this is our destiny as Christians. This is what we have awaiting us, freedom from this sinful state, the, the completion of our being to be free of sin's penalty, sin's power, and even sin's presence in our glorification. But if eternity started at our, and this is what I Cess Hilton, Cess Hilton is, is a godly man. He planted a, a, a couple of churches in New Zealand. He started a Christian camp called Kiwi Ranch. You can't Google Kiwi Ranch because now it's moved and owned by other people, but he was a passionate evangelist, Cess. He was the first preacher, my wife, when she came to church, he was the first preacher she ever heard. And she thought, wow, what an amazing man. And she was not even saved at the time. But I remember Cess, and he said this. He said, our lives, or I'll put this, our lives should be f- so focused on uh, being about God's will that when we get to heaven, our response should be, I've never seen this place before. Basically, what you're saying is this, that our lives should be so consumed with the things of God that when we get to heaven, it's just a change of location. I'm sorry, we should already be about the will of God in the here and now, that to get into the presence of God is just the fulfillment of your existence already. See, this is what our destiny is. This is who we are. But I'm not focusing on our destiny today. I wanted you to be aware of, if this is our destiny, if this is who you are, if this is the way you should be or the way you should conduct yourself or your very nature as a person in accordance with the heart of God, well then, how then do we match up to that? How does our purpose match up with our destiny? How do they fall in line? And it is here that we are given the primary task of the Lord Jesus' commission to go and make disciples and to baptize and teach. But the thing I want to focus on basically is the going, the going and making. You see, going is just that. Going is going. It is not sitting. It is not waiting. It is not staying. It is going. And while it may seem somewhat aggressive, when one looks at the first century, the first century church, it actually makes a lot of sense. I shared this last week. Um, Tim Keller, who I enjoy listening to, He makes this observation about the first century church. There was nothing like the repeated and increasingly hostile stance taken by Roman authorities toward Christians. Why? Because all the other religions were willing to bow down to the other gods of other religions, but only Christians were so exclusive and so narrow that they were seen to be a threat to the social order. See, this is because of the pluralistic religious nature of Roman society in the first century. There were a plethora, I like that word, there was a plethora of gods in the culture and everybody prayed to their own, their own gods. And if it was convenient, and I used this illustration last week with um, the leaders, if you had a person of city A go to a city B, they would pray to the gods of city B. Or if they go to a family that worshipped a different God, then they would pray to those gods of that just because it was expected. It was, it, was society, it was acceptable in society to perform such activities. Now, all of a sudden, there's this group of Christians that pop up. These group of Christians who say their God is the God. 
And they're no longer bowing down to gods of other cities or other families. They're no longer bowing down to gods of other guilds or other particular religions. They're not doing that anymore. And so now they're being seen as dissenters of people who are stirring up trouble, of people who are causing a lot of difficulty amongst the social structure. Once again, Tim Keller puts it this way. Um, thus, there was incredible offense, incredible breach of courtesy and civility. There was an insult. There was a danger. And Christians were increasingly seen as bad citizens, too exclusive, too narrow, and a threat to the social order. Sound familiar? Which I thought was really interesting because often that's how we are viewed today because we make a stand on the truths that we have. And yet, amongst all of this, so Christians had to go because if they didn't go, like, okay, you couldn't invite people to church in the first century. Because if now you're being criminalized, criminalized for being a Christian, if you bring a person to the church, what's that person going to do? They're going to look around and think, oh, there's young Jono. I know where he works. Oh, there's little Adam. I know where he works. Oh, Aaron. Then you've got all these people that can sit down and start, so, okay, I want to shut down this person, shut down that person, arrest this person, arrest that person. So the church couldn't invite people, the, the church couldn't invite people to church, to their buildings, because they might get shut down. You could lose your job, you could use your house, you could use your lands. Any of your possessions you had in the first century church, you could lose because you chose to follow Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. The church continued to grow. They continued to fulfill the purpose in which God had given them. How? How is it that even in the midst of such opposition, how is it in the midst of such hardship, the church grew by the thousands and people didn't become fearful? Maybe they were wise, but they didn't become fearful. They didn't restrain. They stood boldly and the church, oh, sorry, and the gospel continued to go forth. Now, how? Well, you could say the most obvious things, supernatural power through natural means. In other words, ordinary people touched with the divine power of God. But this is the, this is the thing I want to share with you today in regards to our purpose, something we may have looked over, something we've heard a number of times. But if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. And we're going to read John chapter 4 and have a look at some things that I thought was really quite interesting. So we're going to read from verse 21 through to 42, which is a lot, but we'll get there. Just to provide a bit of context, Jesus has decided to go through Sychar, which is out of his way. He's on his way to Galilee. He takes a sidetrack to a little town called Sychar where there's a well. He meets a woman there, and he starts talking with her. His disciples go off to get something to eat. And in verse 21, we, we are introduced to the introduction of this Samaritan woman and Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have bought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Verse 37. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we, are no, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This ordinary woman is profoundly impacted and profoundly changed when the realization of who is she, of who is she speaking to is Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. You look this in verse 25. I, the one, am speaking to you. And that interaction with Jesus was enough to transform everything she is as an individual. You, you look, she, in verse 28, she leaves her water jar. That was the reason why she was there. She went to go get water. The very thing, the very purpose, she laid to the side because there was a greater purpose that took precedence for her. And for her, that precedence was, I want to go tell them about Jesus. What did she know? What did she know? Did she know about substitutionary atonement? Did she know how many feet the altar was from the, 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 the opening curtain of the outer court? Did she know anything? She knew nothing. And yet, that little she did know was this, that he had told me everything I had ever did. He revealed to me myself in connection to him, and that transformed her. This is, I think, one of the greatest lessons we as Christians forget. Now, it's wonderful to have a lot of knowledge. Please, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. It's wonderful to have answers when people ask difficult questions. It's wonderful to sit down and talk with people about the things of God, and I think that's a wonderful thing to do. But sometimes, sometimes the best door opener, the best way to get a foot in there is to share one's personal experience with Jesus first. To share something as simple as, this is how Jesus touched my life. Um, I, I shared with the, the, uh, the prayer group on Wednesdays, I met a guy at the hospital on Wednesday afternoon. His name was Mark, lovely man. 
we're sitting down having a talk. We, and all it was was there was an elderly gentleman with his elderly wife, and we let them go in front of us while we were waiting at the cafe. I was waiting for Emily, who was getting the MRI done. We're sitting there talking. I says, hey, bro, how you going? Found out a little bit about him. Talking away, talking away. Find out that he's there because of his missus. She's really sick, got a big growth in her stomach, about 20 centimetres long. It's not looking good for her. And he's telling me the story. He's from Blacktown and having a good chat. And I says, oh, wow. And he goes, what are you here for? He says, you got an empty wheelchair. Because my daughter was, it looked really weird, just looked like I was stealing a wheelchair from the hospital. But, um, but so I'm, I'm sitting there and, I'm, and I told him, and I got to share with him Emily's story, a little bit of Emily's story and the goodness of God and all of that. And I says to him, are you religious, bro? And he goes, no, no, I went, I went to a Catholic school, but now I'm not religious at all. I says, bro, do you mind if I pray for you? And I pray for your missus. Can I get your phone number so I can find out how things are going with you and your missus? And they've got seven kids between the two of them. And I says, bro, I've got six. That's good. <laughs> and so we, we got to talking. But something as, as simple as that, something as simple as that might be an opportunity to be able to be involved with his life and share a reality, a life-transforming message that might help him that might help his missus, that might change the lives of their kids. Something as simple. Now, if I went to him and sat there and says, did you know there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, if I started giving him facts, he probably would just shut off. But it's about life. And this is the life that was transformed by this Savior here to this woman. And, And so this means... If you read in verse 42, which I'll just jump to there, it was that one opening that these people were then brought to Jesus and reached their own conclusion about him. Now, the reason why I jumped here is that because there's two points I want to take away from this. First point, the power of testimony. The power of testimony. Jesus did this when John testified to who he was at his baptism. And he had, I think it was Andrew and Philip that followed afterwards. And they says, Rabbi, where are you staying? And what did Jesus say? When asked by Andrew, Jesus said, come and see. You come and find out for yourself. Come and have a look. And then what does Andrew do? Andrew goes and finds his brother straight away. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Maybe that's all we need to do, is that we bring people to Jesus and then say, here he is, then you reach your conclusion. You have your own interaction with him. Philip does the same thing for Nathaniel, and he goes, we've found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's response, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Philip answers, come and see. Come and find out. Come and have a look. Maybe, maybe the deeper issues can be addressed later, but the initial impact might not be the headlong charge, you know, charge in, but the power of a transformed life. Or as Tim Keller puts it, the ordinary, individual, informal, missional living of the church. The ordinary, individual, informal, missional living of the church. Now, last week, Nick's cell group went into the city 
and did some ministry with the homeless people. And they shared last week. And you had, you had uh, Viv and Jono and, and who was the third person that shared? Sorry? Irene, sorry. And, and so they shared with us. And, and what I would find really interesting is this, that if we want to make an impact for the kingdom of God on a macro level as a church, may not necessarily be us doing big church events all the time. Maybe it might be the micro level of the individual reaching out to the people in your community, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your schools, in your universities, in your shops. Maybe on the micro level there, you reaching out to them will make a bigger impact on the macro level of the community. Maybe John MacArthur, when he was being interviewed by Ben Shapiro, actually said this. He said, as a Christian, I'm not here to start a revolution. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and transform society one soul at a time. Maybe, just maybe, that is your role and that is my role. That through the power of a transformed life, we can impact not only the lives of people around us, but the communities of people around us. Maybe, just maybe, that could be the way we do it. You think about your context. You think about your neighbors. You think about your friends. You think about your loved ones. You think about how you are in their lives and the impact you can have for the kingdom in those lives. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe that's where God has put you for that purpose? To shine as a light for him? To show what the love of God looks like? Maybe, maybe that could be it. But that's the first thing. That's the first thing, the power of testimony. The second thing, the benefit we receive from obedience. The benefit of obedience. Now, let me explain this. In verse 32, we read this. He said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Now, the idea Jesus shares here is that sowing and reaping for the kingdom is just as satisfying to having a meal to the body. That's what he's saying here. It means sowing in the kingdom is to be regular, is to be intentional, and to be deliberate. You don't go through a week eating one or two meals a day. You don't. Now, you, you have your three, you, you do your three squares. I do my three squares, sometimes five squares. But I do, my, I do my meals. I eat regularly so I can be healthy. Well, then perhaps the benefit of obedience is that by regularly sowing into the kingdom will benefit us spiritually as well. Will benefit us spiritually as well. I receive energy when I eat. I receive protein when I eat. I cannot eat a meal for you. So I can't sit down and I can't eat a big, like, you know, 250 ounce steak, whatever it might be, and have Brendan receive the protein from that. No, I'll happily eat it on his behalf, but he benefits no way whatsoever. So it is in the spiritual aspect. It's something that you must be involved with. And being obedient, well, that's a part of it. Now, remember though, it may not necessarily be you going out and preaching a three-point sermon to somebody. It might be you just sharing a loving word. It might be you, like I did with Mark, just praying for someone. It might be you being patient in a bad situation at work. It might be you being understanding of someone that shouldn't be understanding, understood. Maybe it's being accepting of someone that's a real pain in the bottom. 
It might be any one of those things, but it's a, you could be sowing for the kingdom in those small ways. And what's really exciting is that when you do that, you reap the rewards of it. So you don't have to walk around thinking, I can't do this or I can't do that. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it could be the way you live your life in front of others. And that when you say something, well, then that then in turn gives you the right to be heard when you share about the love of Jesus. Now, I'm going to quickly go to something, okay? We're going to read that for now. But you see, you've got destiny and you've got purpose. The enablement to us to be able to do those things, though, and this is what I find really exciting, is that it comes down to the joy. In Nehemiah 8.10, we read, the joy, Do not grieve the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you ever noticed that when you're joyful over something, doesn't matter what it is, you have no issue talking about it? New Zealand won the Rugby World Cup. None of you care, but I'll tell you about it. Toronto beat the Golden State Warriors, which was surprised everybody in game one of the NBA Finals. 95% of people here don't care, but I'll tell you anyway, because I was happy that they won. I didn't expect them to win, but they did. Have you know, you have people, you'll talk about the dumbest things even when people don't want to hear it. And there's no disrespect to anybody, no disrespect to anybody at all, please. But sometimes when grandparents talk and they talk about their grandkids, and like they're beaming, they're just beaming. And you're like, wow. And like sometimes the person's looking going, okay, that's nice. But for the pe- you have no issue with that. Perhaps, perhaps we in turn have lost the joy of the Lord that prevents us from communicating the wonderful transformation that's taken place in our lives. Perhaps that that particular day or that particular moment, the joy has escaped you. I mean, this is the reason why in Psalm 51, when you read Psalm 51, you have David who's crying out, but look down in verse 12. He prays this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This was a man who was in sin, a man who had forsaken everything God had spoken about. And when he was confronted with such sin, got on his knees before God and says, Please, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because you think about it, when you're joyful, then you'll proclaim such joy. The joy of God's salvation, I like this, the joy of being loved so much by God that he sent his son to die for you. The joy that he saw me in time from eternity and that he laid aside his glory to adorn human form. The the joy of being considered so worthwhile by the Lord that he lived a human life susceptible to human temptation and yet he remained faithful to God's plan and completely sinless. The joy of Jesus seen beyond the cross and the pain and the separation from his father as he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
The joy of knowing that every selfish offense, every wicked thought, every bad attitude, every proud look, every sin I have committed, am committing, and will ever commit was paid for by the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the joy of such salvation, the joy of the Lamb of God who takes away my sin, who takes away the sin of the world. The joy of knowing that that same Jesus who died and was buried rose again because God was satisfied with the the payment that he made for me. The payment that he made with his blood and with his body to the glory of God the Father. The joy of knowing that by faith I receive salvation of my soul through grace that results in joy unspeakable because I am made new. I am born again. I am given a new heart, a new spirit with a new name and a new family, a new citizenship with a new purpose and a new destination. That is what I, that is the joy. If you understand what we have been given in Christ, then joy is natural. As I was looking at this, as I was writing this, as I was studying this, the smile that came upon my face to think, God, thank you for what you have given me. Thus, to, to be about our, our destiny and purpose, to be about what God has given us, is, I like what Hudson Taylor says, it is the consciousness of the threefold joy of the Lord, his joy in ransoming us. His joy is dwelling within us as our Savior and power for fruit bearing, and his joy in possessing us as his bride and his delight. It is the consciousness of this joy which is our real strength. Our joy in him may be, fluctuate, may be a fluctuating thing. His joy in us knows no change. That, that, that is how our God sees me. That is how your Savior views you. This puts a smile on my face that even though I might feel like rubbish at times, his joy in me remains the same. That even though I might fail at times, his love for me remains the same. He will always be my Savior, my God, my friend. See, this is, this is, see, the joy of our destiny is because of our Savior. The joy of our purpose is because of our Savior. The joy of our ability to live, to fulfill such a destiny and purpose is because of our Savior. So my, as corny as this sounds, my, my challenge for you is, is as we live for eternity, our destiny and purpose in living for eternity is where the joy of the Lord is our strength. This, this is my encouragement for you as you move on today. As you move on today, this is where I want our focus to be. So take some time. Take some time to meditate on the scriptures of this joy unspeakable that's been granted to us by our Savior. If you don't mind, we won't close in a song. I would just like you to be upstanding. I'll invite the prayer team to come out the front as well. I'll close in a word of prayer. And then uh, I would encourage you to bless someone else today to encourage someone else today, to, to love on someone else today. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the joy unspeakable because of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the destination that awaits us 
that in eternity that awaits us, we will be in your presence. We will be made whole. We will see you as you are because we will be like you. Father, we thank you for the purpose that you have given us in the here and now, that we be not idle, that we be not sitting there watching things go by, but be active and involved in the call you have placed us to go into all the world, to make disciples, to baptize in your name, and to teach all those things that should be observed. Father, help us to live out such purpose, understanding that the only way such purpose can be fulfilled is being strengthened by the joy that is found in you and in you alone. Lord, give us a single focus upon you. Lord, give us a vision to see the light of the world, to see you, the author and finisher of our faith, that we will not turn to the left hand or to the right, but hold you ever before us. And so that as we be about our work, we do so because we are moving towards eternity. So we commit ourselves to you now. We thank you, we praise you, and we honor you in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters. If you want to be prayed for,